0: Morning. It's good to see you guys again, to be with you. Happy to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable about weeds. And this is what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest at that time I will tell the harvesters first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn and then a few verses later Jesus explains this parable to his disciples and he says the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man the field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom the weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil Now, if you're thinking, I thought we were supposed to be in Nahum this morning, we're going to get there, but I wanted to stop here first in this parable, because we all know that we are living in a world that is filled with evil right now, from the war in Ukraine to the horrific things that have happened to Israel, to mass shootings, to hypocritical and corrupt leaders, to every victim of injustice for every heart that has suffered evil and corruption are all too real and this is what this parable shows us that Jesus told in every generation until Jesus comes back evil will be present but there will come a day where Jesus will get rid of evil everything that causes sin and evil in the world and that is the day that we hope for as believers and followers of Christ God's justice will prevail even when it feels like the evil might be winning. This parable reminds us that one day evil will be dealt with. And that is also the day that we look forward to when we hear Nahum. When we turn backwards and look at Nahum's message, that is the same message that we can get. So let's go there and turn there now to the book of Nahum. Nahum is three chapters long, and we're not going to read all three chapters today, but I do want us to read through the entirety of chapter one. It's 15 verses. I know that might be a lot for Sunday morning, but the reason I want us to read through chapter one is because chapter one introduces the main theme of the whole book of Nahum, and it is the key to understanding what the message is about. So even though it's many verses, let's turn to Nahum 1 And let's read that together. It says, A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. His, the rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So from the very first lines, there's some things that we can gather about Nahum. From the very beginning, we know that it's a prophecy against Nineveh. And even though it's against Nineveh, and it looks like it's written to Nineveh, it is actually written to a Judean audience in the, during the reign of the Assyrian Empire, who was probably being threatened and pressured by the Assyrian Empire. And though it is addressed to Nineveh specifically, Nineveh represents here the entire Assyrian Empire as a whole. It represents the whole empire because Assyria was the capital city or Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So it's not just a message to the local city of Nineveh, but it's a message against the whole nation of Assyria. And it's a message about the downfall and destruction of their reign of terror. So why would Nahum be giving a prophecy against the Assyrian empire to God's people? A clue to that can be found in the very name of Nahum. The meaning of his name is comfort. So we can gather that he is giving a message of comfort for God's people. But when you read Nahum's prophecy, it doesn't sound very comforting. How could a message filled with descriptions of wrath and vengeance be comforting? Well, it's not comforting if you are Assyria, but it is comforting if you belong to God's people. It's comforting because it's a message all about God's justice against his enemies and the enemies of his people. If you were a part of God's people during this time hearing this message, you would have found great comfort because it talks about how God's justice will ultimately prevail and bring down the evil Assyrian empire who for so long has wreaked havoc and destruction everywhere they went. For God's people hearing this message, they would have found comfort because it is a message that God will vindicate and send his wrath against the evil they have experienced. God has already judged his own people, but now it was time for the judgment of their enemies. And this is the theme of Nahum chapter one. And this chapter also sets the tone for the rest of the message. God's justice will prevail against those who plot against him. Taking this into mind, I would like to focus on the theme of God's justice And then think about some things that we can learn for what that means for us today and into the future. The first thing that we can learn about God's justice from Nahum is that it is vindicating. In verse 2 it says that God is an avenging God. And when we think of vengeance or vindication or someone taking vengeance, we can easily think of something along the lines of revenge. And when we think of revenge, we can think of something along the lines of a story like the Count of Monte Cristo, where the main character gets wrongfully accused, he gets put in prison for many years, and then finally upon his release, he makes it his life's ambition to get revenge on those who have wronged him. But is this how we should think of God when it says that he is an avenging God? No. When it says that God is an avenging God, it does not mean that he is in heaven right now, filled with anger at those who have wronged him, and he's just looking for opportunity to get his revenge. When it says that God is an avenging God, it is better to understand it as God's desire to make things right. God's vindicating work is his saving work to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve and the rest of all creation enjoyed something that the Hebrew people referred to as shalom. And you've probably heard that word before. It's a Hebrew word that often gets understood as maybe a greeting, you know, shalom, shalom. But shalom is a word that is more than just a greeting. It is a word that refers to everything being the way it is supposed to be. Before sin, everything was the way it was supposed to be. Everything was right between Adam and Eve and their relationship and then their relationship with God. And everything was right between Adam and Eve, their relationship with the rest of creation and creation with God. But when sin entered in, it destroyed Shalom. And death and destruction have wreaked havoc ever since. God's vindicating work refers to his overall saving work to bring back and restore shalom, to make all things new, to make everything the way it ought to be. This work has less to do with revenge than it does making things right by removing evil and things that cause evil in creation. So that's the first thing we can learn about God's justice, is that it's vindicating. Not in the sense of revenge, but God's overall saving work to make things new, to make things right. And this brings us to the second thing we can learn about God's justice, that it involves his wrath. Wrath can be a scary thing for us to talk about. But because God is a God of love, he must deal with evil. And his wrath is an instrument of his love to do just that. God's wrath and his vengeance are not two separate things, but rather God's wrath is a part of God's vindicating work. And as some commentators put it, they they say this, God's wrath is the power that removes what hinders God's purposes and destroys shalom for the entire created order. Divine wrath is God's love in action, correcting what is wrong for the sake of the creator's purposes for creation. So this wrath is described in chapter 1 as a wrath that is poured out like fire and a wrath that causes rocks to crumble in God's very presence. Nothing can avail against God's divine love poured out in his wrath. In the same way a loving parent might feel wrathful when something evil happens to their child, God enacts his wrath against those who bring sin and devastation to his creation. To the Assyrian Empire, this was terrible news. To God's people, at this time, it was great news. It was great news because they can trust that God is not a God who can be mocked, but that he is a God who will act to accomplish his will. And this brings us to the third thing that we can learn about God's justice, that it is a refuge for those who trust in him. Right after, in Nahum 1, God's wrath is described as being poured out like fire and rocks crumbling, it says that God is, a good, God is good and a refuge in times of trouble and a place of shelter for those who trust in Him. God's justice is terrible for those who are against Him, but a shelter for those who belong to Him. And it's like the story of Noah. The world became so filled with evil and destruction that God decided to send a flood to get rid of it and to start over, except for Noah and his family. The ark that Noah built was a shelter for him and the animals in his family. And in the same way, God's justice is a shelter for those who trust in him and revere him. So we went through those briefly, but just to recap, the three things that we can learn about God's justice is that it's vindicating in the sense of making things right, His wrath is a part of this vindicating work and a necessary part of his divine love. And his justice is a shelter for those who trust in him and seek him. So now I want to think about what does this mean for us today? But before we get there, we have to understand, in light of these things from Nahum chapter one, we need to understand these things that we've learned about God's justice in relation To what God has done through Jesus. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the exact representation of the image of God. If we want to know what God is like, Jesus shows us. All of the fullness of God is revealed in the life and work of Jesus, and this includes God's justice. Jesus fulfilled God's justice in his life, death, and resurrection. We've already mentioned that God's justice is vindicating and his vindicating work is his desire to restore shalom, to bring back um, peace and to make all things new. When Jesus lived among us on earth, he unleashed the kingdom of God and embodied God's saving, vindicating work. Through the works he did on earth, he began to restore shalom. He began making all things new and he preached good news to the poor He began to set prisoners free, he gave sight to the blind, and he began to give freedom to the oppressed. In this way, Jesus began fulfilling God's saving, vindicating work. But all of this culminated when Jesus was arrested and when he was nailed to a cross. Though he was completely innocent, he was sentenced to death like a criminal, he was beaten and mocked, and his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. And on that cross, Jesus bore in his body all of the weight of sin and death and God's wrath against sin and death. Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, and he took it down to the grave, and that is where the power of sin died. Because three days later, he rose from the dead, overturning the power and tyranny of death, the wages of our sin. And now, because Jesus died in our place on the cross and rose victoriously from the grave, he provides salvation for all who place their confidence in who he is and what he's done. Jesus fulfills God's outpouring of justice the same way, and in the same way, his justice is a shelter for those who trust him. Jesus, perfectly embodies the justice of God that we read about in Nahum chapter 1. So because of what Jesus has accomplished, we can now think about what it means for us today as those who trust in Jesus and seek to be his hands and feet in the world. In thinking about how to live in light of Nahum's message, and in light of how Jesus fulfilled the justice of God described in Nahum chapter 1, we need to understand the warnings of Nahum and who they pertain to. The Assyrian Empire was a brutal, violent empire who trampled over their victims and captives. We know from Nahum chapter 3 that they were so brutal and violent that many nations felt the reverberations of their evil and their violence. In the very last verse in Nahum chapter 3, it says this Nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty. So Nahum's message about God's justice is a warning not just for Assyria, but is a warning for all who seek to be like Assyria. It is a warning for all who seek to use the weapons and methods of Assyria to conquer and control. And it is also a warning to God's people who fall prey to the the seduction of Assyria's power. This is a warning for us today as well, for all who desire power and will, not, and will stop at nothing to have that power. And as a warning for the church today, when the church craves power and control. As we try to understand how to live out Nahum's message, it's important to understand that God's people today, we are not called to seek after power and control. Whenever the church has tried to attain power and control, it loses its way. So when the church or anyone seeks after power and control, they just follow in the footsteps of Assyria. The church is not called to seek after power and control, but rather the church is called to faithfulness. We are called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world. We are called to live in such a way that the people people get a glimpse of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is the complete opposite of the Assyrian kingdom and every evil kingdom that has ever existed. We are called to faithfulness in such a way that God, working through his spirit, builds his kingdom on earth just the way it is in heaven. The church is called to stand up against sin, evil, injustice, But we're not called to use the weapons of earthly, evil kingdoms. Just like the parable of the weeds that we talked about at the beginning, we are not called to pull up the weeds ourselves. But as we are faithful, God is the one who uproots the weeds. But he has given us weapons of faithfulness. Our best weapons to use as we seek to be faithful are not anything that's made by human hands, but our best weapons to use as we seek to be faithful are the eternal weapons of faith, hope, and love. We have faith that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We have faith that he died and rose again and is coming again. We have faith in things that cannot be seen. When the whole world looks like evil, And destruction reign everywhere we have faith that even though they are still present Jesus is the one who reigns and is making all things new we have hope that though evil and sin are still very present in the world we are awaiting an inheritance of a world made new where sin and evil are gone forever just like faith, we hope for things that we don't fully see yet. Our hope as Christians is not that one day we're going to escape this world and go to a place high in the sky called heaven where we're going to be floating around on clouds all day. Heaven is real, and those who die in the Lord are safe in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to tell us how to get to heaven. He came to establish and build a kingdom. Our hope is in this kingdom that we experience partially now, but we'll experience fully later. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God's grand design is that one day, everything in heaven and everything on earth will be brought together under Jesus. Heaven is the unseen realm where God reigns On his throne, and one day heaven and earth will be brought together and the Lord's prayer will be answered. God's kingdom will come to earth in all of its fullness, and the glory of God will be everywhere just as the waters cover the seas. God will make all things new and dwell with us. He will be our God, and we will be his people. It is this hope that we must have when we're in the dark. This hope in the coming kingdom and in the renewal of all things is the light that keeps us walking in the dark. It is the compass that shows us where to go when we're lost. This hope is the anchor of our hearts when we feel like we're drowning and just battered by the waves around us. And it is this hope for the inheritance to come that keeps our heads above water when all we are doing is feeling like we're just treading water. But faith and hope are not enough by themselves. There is one thing that binds them all together. The greatest weapon of all that we have been given is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said that these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. One day, we will not need faith anymore because we will see the author and perfecter of our faith face-to-face And one day we will not need hope anymore because everything that we've been hoping for, the inheritance that we've been hoping for, will be our reality. But love will continue to exist for all eternity, even when hope and faith have faded away. We are called to live as Jesus lived in the world, and everything Jesus said and did was prompted by love. In Romans, it says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we are called to emulate this love through the Holy Spirit given to us when we have put our trust in Jesus. The kind of love we are called to live out and emulate is also described in Philippians chapter 2. Paul describes how Jesus loved us to the point of even going to die on a cross for us. And we are called to imitate that same attitude that he had by putting others' needs ahead of our own and living sacrificially to meet the needs of others around us. Because love will last for all eternity, love is the greatest investment that we can ever invest in. If we don't learn to love like Jesus, we have wasted our lives. As we as the church seek to use these weapons of faithfulness, the weapons of faith, hope, and love, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, we can trust that even though sin and evil are present, God's justice will one day prevail. In Nahum, God judged the Assyrian empire. Nahum also shows us that God will judge every evil empire and all of his enemies in every generation. In every generation until Jesus comes back, there will be evil. There will be evil empires as we're seeing today. There will be sin. But what we see in Nahum is a reminder that God's justice will one day prevail until the last of his enemies is defeated. And what is the last of his enemies? It is death. In 1 Corinthians 15:26 it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Just like Babylon, Assyria, and all the evil empires who have ever existed, who have ever oppressed people and dealt violently with them, death is often personified in scripture as an enemy who oppresses and threatens. But the good news that we see from Nahum and that we see fulfilled in Jesus is that even though death still exists, both physically and spiritually. Jesus has already defeated it. Yet death, death is still very real and is present right now. But because of Jesus, death has no power over those who trust in him. And one day, death itself will die completely. And because Jesus rose from the dead, those who have found shelter in him, by trusting in him, have the hope of being raised to new life with him and inheriting the new heavens and the new earth, when everything in heaven and earth are brought together under Jesus. In that day, God's justice will be complete. His saving, vindicating work will have vanquished all evil, all sin, and restore Shalom. Everything will be the way it ought to be. Death, the final enemy, will be no more. And the same thing that God said about Assyria in Nahum 3, verse 19, will be said about death. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? as I close today, I'd like us to do something a little bit differently. I'm going to ask us to stand, and I want us to say together an ancient hymn of praise to the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and a prayer of praise that also reminds us of the hope that is to come. So Let's stand and say this together.